Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond, and today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the Founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back Check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education. And our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder Fam, welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're speaking with Sebastian Siematikowski, the CEO and co-founder of Klarna, the biggest buy now, pay later company in the world, bringing consumers a low cost and low risk alternative to traditional high cost credit. Sebastian comes from humble beginnings and was able to build Klarna into a finance and banking industry disruptor that now has over 150 million users worldwide. In our conversation, we discuss overcoming a crisis, leading a business through uncertain times, and challenging the status quo on a daily basis. Please welcome to the Founder Podcast, Sebastian Siamatikowski. 
First question I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Well, uh, quickly, look, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant kid, Polish background, born and raised in Sweden. Um, for whatever reason, I can't really explain why, but I did have this <laughs> this interest in in entrepreneurship. Like I was reading these books of Richard Branson, and, you know, and, and the founder of Virgin and 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 IKEA, the founder of IKEA, Inger Kampreit, was a Swedish superstar from an entrepreneur perspective. Um, so for whatever reason, I had this interest. I went to business school, you know, directly after uh, of the high school. My father wanted me to really to be a doctor, so I was a little bit t- disappointed. You know, I didn't really know what I was going to do there. When I went there, everyone wanted to work at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and McKinsey. You know, that was kind of the thing to do. Uh, at that point in time, nobody really wanted to start a company. It was actually 7% of, of, of students back then wanted to start a company. Today, it's 70, so it's changed quite a lot. Um, and but I, I, you know, that was pretty much after two years. I was like, no, I need a, you know, I think it's the Swedish and the Australians. We all take a gap year out of university and go travel backpacking. You always meet the Australians everywhere, um, and the Swedes and the Israelis actually. They're over all the place. But anyways, um, so I took a gap year. We did some backpacking, you know, around the world without flying, which was fantastic. Came back a little bit too late to continue my semester. So I had, I was just like unemployed back in my home city, small city of Uppsala, but you know, 250,000 people outside of Stockholm. I couldn't get a job. And I found myself, um, I was even, even getting, you know, welfare checks for a while. But anyways, I, I found a job eventually at this, um, at this factoring firm, right? Like factory. I didn't even know what factoring was. It was some kind of like buying accounting receivables and stuff. I, I had no clue what that meant, but I was like, great, it's a job. It was a sales job. Started picking the phone, started calling clients, and it was difficult. Um, you know, most people, when you call about such services, you're going to call some some um, some person who's responsible for the accounting within some mid-sized company, and they're going to be like, "Look, we've used these services for 20 years with the supplier. I'm not interested, whatever." Um, but I was fortunate back then. You got to remember, this is like oh three or four. Um, I started following some e-commerce companies which at that point of time was a growing entrepreneurial sector in Sweden as, as Amazon wasn't really present. And, you know, people realized that you put some Google AdWords out there and they would sell stuff, you know, more expensive than they bought. And, and so um, I called them and, and they were like, look, we, we may need some help, but really we would need this kind of what ended up being buy now, pay later type of service. So I was like, wow, that's interesting. I actually initially even didn't think I, I would start it myself. I was more kind of trying to do it at a company I was at, like suggesting to my managers, we should do this, you know, this, this would really sell. Uh, they were actually quite welcoming, but the problem was the company was a fraud. <laughs> it, it turned out later on, it was like, you know, some gangsters running it and it was just like, you know, a mess. And so it became obvious to me, like it wasn't going to work out and I left the company. So came back to, uh, uh, to school and, and unfortunately there was an incubator you know, was trying to help students start companies, which is also quite uncommon at that, that point of time. Uh, went to them, presented this idea, more like on a whim, really. Uh, but the CEO there, she was like, look, this is a great idea, you have to do it. Uh, and then I felt a little bit ashamed not to try. So so to me, like, you know, I, I had, Nicholas was an old old friend out of, you know, uh, high school. We used to work at Burger King together. We had done the travel together. Uh, Victor was just a, a guy I picked up in school who was the only student, really, who I spoke to about my idea, who was like, oh, that's fantastic. All the rest were like, ah, good for you, go and do it. Like, you know, 
but he was like, oh, that's fantastic. I want to join. Um, so that was kind of the recruitment process. And then, um, and then we kicked it off. Right. And so it was, I think what was important for us though, to us at that point of time, it was a major decision. Like it was like, look, everyone else is just focusing on getting to Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley on the careers and their, you know, the grades in school and stuff. And we're going to forfeit all of that and, and do this instead. And it felt like a massive decision. And as long as we thought about it as like a, a lifelong decision, it, we just couldn't make it. But, but then we started thinking about it as like, hey, you know what? Let's try this for six months, see where it goes. And then we'll see after six months, like either, you know, worst case it fails and we go back and we finish our studies and, you know, whatever, and we'll get jobs at Morgan Stanley, maybe if we're lucky, um, um, you know, or it actually works out, right? So I think that the um, that was um, that was really the start of it. Uh, it it really helped to think about it that way, so that we, uh, you know, uh, could kick it off. What happened in those first six months that made you keep going with it? Well, the thing is that again, a little bit different. Like one of the biggest, you know, the, the biggest regret I may have life potentially is I'm I'm not an engineer, right? I couldn't code myself. We none of us could code, right? So we had to find somebody to kind of code the first version of our system for us. And uh, so to us, it was like more like, okay, let's start a company. What is the name of the company going to be? You know, things like that. I remember having this, this whiteboard and we realized quickly, look, one thing was obvious, which was that like we were three 23 year old kids. And now we're asking these merchants to trust us with a lot of money. Like, you know, that's a pretty big thing. So we said, we won't be able to we can't be big and trustworthy, but we can act as if we can, you know, look at it as if we're trustworthy. So we put a lot of effort on like how thick are our business cards and how serious does our website look like. I even remember we specifically got a phone number that had a lot of zeros at the end. So it would look like there was a switchboard with a lot of connections. Um, so, you know, we really, uh, we, we chose a name. At that point of time, our name was Creditor. So it was like supposed to sound very serious. Um, so we spoke, you know, just spent a lot of time on making an impression of looking very professional. Um, and, and then at the same point of time, we're out fundraising, trying to find somebody who would support the idea it was basically a PowerPoint. Um, and then we were fortunate the school arranged this event where there was a few business angels. Nicholas, my co-founder pitched a 30 second elevator pitch. And then Jane, our first business angel kind of said, oh, this sounds interesting. She approached me. We started talking. And then she basically, you know, signed us a check for, um, for sixty thousand uh, dollars at, at you know ten percent of the company. So, so thus, and, and and I think the other thing that was very important for us in the first six months, right? Because we were in this incubator, so there was a lot of other startups there. Um, but you could clearly see, and I remember to this day that, like, you know, some for some of them, entrepreneurship was this fun side exercise. Like they would come in between some exams, do an hour or two, sit and brainstorm in some room, and then they would, you know, um, go home. And none of these companies survived, right? For some other people in that incubator, this was like it, right? And, and that was also something we agreed among us as co-founders. We said, look, if we're going to do this for six months, let's do it full-heartedly, right? So we had this rule. We had to eat breakfast together. We had to show up at 8 a.m., eat breakfast together work and then we worked to 11 p.m and we did that every day saturday sunday all the time right so we we just never left that office there's even a funny picture because they didn't have any aircon in that office and it became very hot 
in the summers. There's this old picture of us sitting in our underwear working that summer. And so it's like, uh, you know, it was just, we were extremely focused to put in the hours to make this happen. Um, and that was really it for the first, <coughs> sorry, for the first six months. Um, and then finally, Jane, who was our business angel, she also connected us to some engineers that could build the first kind of version of our of our system, right? And and that eventually allowed us to go live. So I think we, we kicked it off really seriously around October, November, and we get, went live in April uh, with our first client. And, and, and since we couldn't code most of what we did, we were lifting the phone and calling potential clients. So we were very early talking to potential clients that could be, you know, important in order to start growing the business. So we were out there getting feedback from customers, talking to them, pitching them the idea, hearing what they had to say. Um, and that was extremely helpful in order to be able to, you know, uh, create a system that would actually satisfy those requirements. So that was back in 2005, right? When you kind of, yep. Okay. So then, uh, like was, was buy now pay later kind of like lay buys online. Was that a thing back then or, or was it, was it? When we started, um, you know, I'm not sure that anything is really new. We, we, we basically, when we started, there was obviously old mail order and catalog companies where you would order things from a catalog. And when you did so in a country like Sweden, which was primarily a debit card market, it's not really a credit card market. Most people have debit cards. So it, in that environment, when people were shopping online, they, sorry, in catalogs, they would order and then they would get a bill and then they would pay for the items that they kept. So it was very clear that this made a lot of sense for the consumer because it was nice to touch and feel something before you paid for it. Um, and, uh, and especially when you buy something at a distance or a mail, mail order company. Uh, but online, it didn't really exist. And most of the online merchants only offered debit cards and consumers didn't really like it. So it was very clear that like this traditional payment method that had been around for, you know, hundreds of years, really, actually over a hundred years. Actually, in our company, IKEA even started as a mail order company. So they were even offering it. Um, it made sense to offer that in an online environment. But obviously the merchants were worried. What if the customer doesn't pay? What if, you know, uh, I end up losing a lot of money and so forth. So, so they really appreciated the idea of a middleman that would come in and take all the risk and solve these issues for them. Um, so it was actually, you know, that was the inspiration for it. So it, it had existed. It just hadn't been done in the digital environment in a way that made sense online. I see. And you guys started tackling the European market first, right? Well, you know, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in Sweden, at least it's like <laughs> at that point of time, we were like, oh, okay. Now it seems that we have done really well in Sweden. Let's go to the massive market of Norway, uh, which is like half size of Sweden. I mean, Sweden is 10 million people. I mean, Norway is like five or six um, so, you know, I mean, with the benefit of insight, I would probably have gone to larger markets quicker. It, 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 to some degree, it's the same effort, but a very different reward in a larger market. Um, but yeah, no, so we started expanding it in, in kind of the neighboring countries, uh, you know, and eventually came to Germany as well. And, uh, at what point in time were you kind of like, we're onto something like, when did you know? That, that you guys were like, okay, yeah, this is going to be big. Did you, did you ever imagine that Klarna would be as big as it is now? And yeah, tell, tell us when you kind of, kind of realized. In regards to that question, I think that like, um, 
you know, there's a uh, the biggest football player out of Sweden is Slatan Ibrahimovic, right? And um, fantastic superstar. And I think about him sometimes when I get that question and ask myself, like, if you would have asked him as a kid, did he expect himself to play, you know, in the Champions League in the best teams in the world? I don't. I don't think the answer would have been. Of course, I knew I was going to do that, but I don't think the answer would have been. I wasn't dreaming about it, right? Like, obviously, he was dreaming about it, and I think. The same, the same applies to us. So it's like, obviously, we were dreaming of Klarna becoming this massive company. At the same point of time, it felt, you know, crazy, right? Um, but what was a little bit different is that we were not in Silicon Valley. And at that point of time, there wasn't a big tech scene in Stockholm. And so to us, this even this idea of like, let's burn through a lot of money and then eventually show profitability, that wasn't an option. To us, it was like the first thing we focused on is becoming profitable. And the irony is that when we went to our business angel, we said we need $40,000 to reach profitability. And she said, no, you're going to need 60. And so we we basically, you know, and then, but the irony of thing was that we were so bootstrapping and we were paying ourselves very low salaries and we were very focused on cost. So actually... We only burned through about $30,000 before we turned the company down uh, around and we were making a profit and uh, we were profitable. So that was, you know, quite cool in the sense that we were showing a good profit from day one and we could support ourselves in our growth. Um, and then obviously, we again, we didn't have massive salaries or anything. We started increasing them a little bit eventually, but... At that point of time, it wasn't really, uh, you know, much more than you would have gotten as a student loan studying. So, <clears throat> so um, I think that that was a little bit different than how you see companies do today. Uh, but to us, it was really, really nice because it created a comfort in a sense that this business works. So, like, you know, obviously it doesn't promise you scale, doesn't promise you that you're going to be massive, but created a massive sense of freedom of of being able to control your own destiny as opposed to working at Morgan Stanley or whatever, right? It was our company. It was under our decision. We decided what to do with it. And and to some degree, I think that liberty is when I meet, like, you know, last weekend I was out in our country place and I met a local entrepreneur, lo- you know, running a local restaurant in this place and whatever. And like, I can see, I can see the, the passion in his eyes. And I can see that sense of like, you know, I am responsible for this. This is my place. I run it. I decide, you know, and, and there's something fantastic liberating about that. And so, you know, I think that was the first thing. But then secondly to that, the irony is that, you know, I, I, I was once looking through my old emails because I've saved every email that I've sent to this company. So it's, you know, a lot. And I was going through some old email. I found this old email. I think I wrote about six months into the business. And the email is, goes something like this. It's like, uh, it was at 11 p.m. And it's to Victor and Nicholas, my co-founders, who obviously weren't there. <laughs> but they worked as much as I do. So, But anyways, um, they went there and said, hey, Victor and Nicholas, I've been sitting here. And I started thinking about, you know what? This really thinks, this business model seems to really work. And like, I think there's a massive opportunity. I think we can scale this internationally. I think we can grow this into multiple markets. I think we can, you know, uh, really uh, compete with the banks eventually. I think we can become a, a real competitive threat. Um, I think we can grow a fantastic business out of this. I mean, it's just so fantastic. 
But then the funny thing is that I am good at it. I said, wouldn't it be cool if like we grew this into this amazing global worldwide business with customers around the world, whatever. And then one day we go down, we close down the servers, we shut down the business and we go home. <laughs> I was like, I don't know where I got that from. It was like this crazy idea that we were just like, oh, let's just close it down. And that was it. And so, you know, but so, so obviously those ideas of like doing, you know, of, of, of building it into something like an Ikea or whatever, it's always been there. The dream has been there, but I don't think, you know, you'd be crazy to think, you know, or feel certain that you could accomplish it. No, nobody's certain about anything. Right? Did you believe though, in your mind, like, was it done? Like, was there a part of it done already in your mind? Well, I think I believed it in the sense that like, I, you know, my father with all his pros and cons, he really, you know, one thing that he really, really did for me was he really believed a hundred percent all, you know, men and women are equal, right? Everyone is equal. And so there was this very strong part of my up, right, upbringing where it doesn't matter if I'm talking to the Swedish king or a president or an entrepreneur, or whatever, we're all just humans. We're all equal value. And, to, and, and part of that was also that means that like it's in your hands, it's it's your destiny and and you decide what to do with it. So, I you know, from that perspective, that at least to me created this feeling that like I don't really see a reason why I couldn't, right? Like why couldn't I? I mean, other people have other people have done this. Uh, why shouldn't I be able to do this, right? And that may sound a bit arrogant or crazy, but I think th that was definitely there, this belief that like, okay, but there were other entrepreneurs that had managed to do this. So why wouldn't I been able to do it? Yeah, thank you for sharing. So um, you're now co you're now the CEO and your co-founders aren't active in the business. Are you able to share kind of how that came about and kind of your journey as now a solo founder as well? Is it, and yeah, I'd love to hear your experiences there. No, I think, look, uh, there's, the stories with Victor and Nicholas are slightly different, right? So uh, Victor was with us about, I think it was six, seven years. Uh, <laughs> I think that, and, and Nicholas was with, was with me about 10 years, right? I First and foremost, like today when I, when I have met a lot of founders and so forth, it is not uncommon that over time people grow apart, right? You grow apart, um, especially if you, I think, get financial success, you know, to some degree, it's one of the most interesting, challenging and fascinating experiences to be in your early thirties, to realize that you don't actually have to work anymore, uh, to realize that you can, you know, do whatever you want. And I think that, 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 you know, we all, a lot of it, at least with us as founders were brought up in an environment where like. You have to go to school, you have to get a job so you can support your family, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you brought up with that concept and then suddenly you realize like you're out of it. Like, uh, you know, I, I had this experience, remember going down to 7-Eleven where I was like, I loved fresh squeezed orange juice and, and a Snickers, but I could never afford enough of it. <laughs> and then suddenly I walk into a 7-Eleven and like, wow, Jesus, I could buy everything in this store. Like, you know, so when you're in the early 30s and you realize that you don't have to work, anymore and that you actually could do something else I, I i think it's actually in a way a challenging thought because you suddenly start asking yourselves what do i want to do what's the purpose of life you know like a lot of questions that you may not have necessarily thought of as deeply uh, before um and and 
And I think it's not uncommon in the founders when you have multiple founders that people come to different conclusions to that. You know, what is it? Why were they really doing this? I know Sequoia, my main investor once told me that the one of their representatives Sequoia said, one of our questions we ask founders is, you know, what's your target? Like, you know, what's your target in the sense of like, what's your financial target? And I remember they asked me that question. And, you know, one of my co-founders asked, answered, you know, uh, 30 million sec or something like that, or $3 million, right? Uh, and my answer was, there is no financial target because the purpose of what I was doing wasn't to create financial success. I really enjoy it and it's amazing and it's a fantastic byproduct of, of what I'm doing. But the purpose of what I was doing was to create this business. And if, if the money is the target, you're eventually going to hit a level where like, you know, you have enough in that sense, right? So I think that like, so you could clearly see among, you know, my co-founders as well, and I see that at, at other co-founders is that like, it's very critical what's driving you because it is extremely demanding and challenging. And so in our case, what ended up happening is Victor, after a few years, was pretty much done. You know, he um, didn't enjoy it as much. I think he also, you know, was challenged to some degree by, you know, managing people as the company started scaling wasn't his strength. His his strength was more numbers than the analytical side. And then over time that became, you know, a, a bigger challenge. So it became quite natural and he left and, and stayed on as a board member, uh, which he was a great board member for many years. Um, with Nicholas, then we created this duality, right? So it was me and Nicholas. And initially that worked really well, but over time, and I think it's almost like I laugh about it because I, 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 uh, I compare this to an old couple, right? A married couple. But uh, over time, there is a risk in their relationship that you stop listening to each other. And you will recognize it when you're like, you only say that because, right? You know each other so well, that you stop listening to what the other person says and you start second guessing their thoughts. Uh, based on your, you know, perceived or decided perception of their who they are, their characteristics as an individual, and me and Nicholas really ended up in that. And you know, we didn't really go to marriage council. Maybe we should have had. Maybe that would have helped. But, um, but it became more and more obvious that you know it wasn't a healthy uh, partnership between us. And it, you know, the irony of things is that. It wasn't really about who was right. You know, at that point in time, I would have said, oh, because I'm right or he's wrong about this decision or that decision. But that wasn't really the thing because the, th the truth is there are many paths to success. You can do things in a lot of ways and still be successful with it. Um, the problem you have is when you have lack of clarity of decision-making and so forth. And there were also some people in the organization at that point in time who clearly saw the divide between myself and him and started playing us against each other, started playing politics on us and, you know, and utilizing the fact that, you know, we had this uh, rift in our relationship. And that obviously further, uh, you know, it, it created an, a, a not a great environment. It became a political environment to some degree where there was, you know, um, too much rumors and blame gaming and stuff going on. And and then eventually one day, you know, I think we both had come to the conclusion, but it was Nicholas that took uh, the formal initiative that like, you know, he was not going to stay. And, um, and 
you know, that was obviously sad, but it was a tremendous improvement for the company. And not because I'm smarter or have better decisions, because I'm not, because it's fantastic decision making and he understands the business really well. But it created clarity. It made it crystal clear who's calling the shots. There was no politics to play anymore. You know, it's uh, it's my decision. It's and and also you got to remember from that what's important. It's my mistakes, because the biggest problem you have when you have lack of clarity is that I when when something went wrong, I could blame Nicholas, uh, either verbally or at least mentally say, ah, you know, it was because Nicholas didn't let me do it the way I would have liked to do it. You know, whatever. And so when that went away, there was no place for me to hide. Only me could bear, bear the accountability and the responsibilities for things that had gone wrong. And that really massively accelerates your learning cycle. Because one of the most common things that we do as humans is we say, it wasn't me, it was somebody else. Now, it's nice in the short term uh, to, to avoid accountability, uh, to avoid responsibility. But in the long term, if we are actually you know, stopping ourselves from learning um, in every situation. And, and I say that like, that's part of being a CEO. You know, everything is my role. It's my fault. Like in the end, everything that's wrong about Klarna is my fault eventually, right? Now, obviously somebody else in the organization may have taken a poor decision, but in the end, I was the one who hired somebody who gave them that responsibility. So everything tracks back to me. Not everything that we do that is great and that works <laughs> tracks back to me. There's tons of things that have nothing to do with me. That's fantastic. But everything that went wrong is my fault. And But the amazing thing about it, I don't see that as a liability. I see that as an asset. Like It is teaching me so much. I'm developing and evolving as an individual. I can be at, at, at such an accelerated path if I'm smart about that, if I listen to that, if I reflect on that. And so, yeah, so I, I, I think that, you know, becoming one founder eventually created that clarity. Is it sad? Of course, yeah. I sometimes miss having a co-founder in that sense and, you know, the partnership and the friendship that that meant. Um, uh, it's different, right? So it's not just positive, but I do think that at the company reached a specific size and maturity, it was the right thing. Hmm. If you started another company again, would you go solo or would you bring on co-founders? No, I might consider co-founders, but what I would do differently, and I've gotten this advice from some, or I've heard some uh, fellow co-founders of large companies give this advice to entrepreneurs. In the end, don't create, like you can be three co-founders, but make sure somebody have uh, the final vote. Somebody can, you know, override eventually so that you don't create that. Because if you have a, a structure where everyone, everyone has veto rights or everyone is exactly equal, uh, that usually over time creates problems. It is good to, in the end, be able to say, well, if shit hits the fact we can't agree or whatever, there's a clear mechanism. What happens then, right? Um, doesn't mean that that person will call all the shots and everything, but when it's when there is a stalemate in decision making, don't don't let that hurt the company because the company can go through a lot of pain and tough times and good times, but it cannot be paralyzed in taking decisions. That is never going to be a good thing. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear 
from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. Let's talk about like disrupting an industry. Um, what's it been like to just di- disrupt uh, the finance and banking industry? Uh, uh, like with all the regulations, it must be extremely challenging, right? Like, and and there must have been times where you've just hit a brick wall and been like, "Geez, like how are we going to get through this one?" Right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, many times, but I think first and foremost, like I don't think honestly, like I appreciate you saying that, and it's kind of you to say, you know, disrupting. You know, we're still a tiny, tiny, tiny uh, thing of a massive industry, but that's also part of what's fun about it, right? Like, I, I really appreciate that. Like, we are in a trillion-dollar market opportunity. There are like these banks, these incumbents. They are so gigantous. You know, they're longest. <laughs> they bet. You know, they're so big on a global level, and so there's just so much opportunity. Like. You know, that's, that's, you know, what I think is fantastic. The addressable market is never a problem in this company. So, so I think that like, um, that excites me a lot, but, but I still think we've done, we've obviously have challenged industry to some degree. I look, so banking, I think is the, the perfect industry to, to, to disrupt. It has high barriers of entry. You know, it has a lot of red tape, a lot of regulatory requirements. Uh, you know, um, both in the sense of a banking license itself, but also tons of legislation around consumer credit. We've seen that recently in Australia with the new buy now, pay later law coming. I mean, it's like there's so much and it really creates a fascinating complexity. So I think to some degree, it's like, I think there are a lot of easier businesses to run in a sense. Like, I don't think any business is easy, but I think there are some businesses that, you know, doesn't have as many outside requirements on you. Um, but to me, that's also the fascination, right? I, I, I'm not, I've not been a big puzzle guy, even though I used to play Myst as a kid, but like I, but I definitely enjoy the intellectual stimulation and challenge of like, my God, how do you build a credit business that isn't actually, you know, a predatory on consumers that is good for consumers. And at the same point of time, follow all the local regulations in 20 markets and build a business around it and make it profitable and make our investors happy and our employees happy and our customers happy. Like, it's just like, it is just mind boggling fun. It's amazing, challenging of like trying to balance all of that, right? Effectively. And you want to move fast and you want to be agile, but at the same point of time, you need to keep your risks in shape because, you know, this is a bank and, you, you know, in a bank, if you take the wrong decision, you can blow up the bank. So like, there are like, you know, um, there are a lot of things to consider. And then, uh, look, I, I find that extremely fascinating and, and, and fun. I think that's what's part of, of this challenge. So, uh, and then, you know, it's also an industry that really needs disruption. It's been, I mean, I, I think the more I learned about it, the more time I spent in it. And I spent so much time with regulators in Australia, but also in Europe, in Brussels, in Washington, in the US. And I see that there's a misconception 
that people think that, you know, you are going to put silly requirements on these banks of how they should behave or what they should be doing in a very prescriptive way. And you think that that's going to solve the problem. The true problem of this industry, same as technology industry, is lack of competition due to lack of customer mobility. It's simply too hard to switch banks. It's simply too difficult, too many steps. It's not simple. If all of us, by the switch of a click of a button, could take all of our data, all of our payroll and our bills and our recurring subscriptions and all that, if we could just move all of that to a separate bank by a click of a button, you'd see some real competition. You see this industry compete not by trying to lock us up as customers and benefit from the fact that this is a low engagement product. People don't think about this every day. It's not like the, you know, the new drone they want to buy or a pair of clothes or whatever. This is a boring product. They don't think about it. And, and it's super difficult to change provider and supplier. Those two things is what's causing these massive profit, excess profits in this industry. And it has to change. Like there's just these excess profits have to be returned to the consumer. So um, I think it's going to happen, but it's going to take some time. You know, I've already been at it for 20 years. I'll probably be at it for a few more decades. Um, so like, you know, it, it's not something you're going to do overnight. Talk to me about public perception. Um, you've had to battle like negative public perception. Why is that? And how have you approached your responses at times? Well, you know, I, <laughs> I talked to Nick about that a bit at Afterpay <laughs> back in the days. He's obviously battled some of that himself. I think that, I mean, to some degree, first and foremost, I think most people are aware of this, but you have to remember there is kind of a media phenomenon, right? So media will tend to first like, you know, hail you, put you on a pedestal. You know, we saw that with Facebook. We saw that with Google. Uh, we saw that with uh, Uber, et cetera, et cetera. And then they will, you know, get the opportunity to, you know, to pull you down, right? So to some degree, that's just a, I think, a, a typical narrative that we see. Obviously, in our case, you have the additional challenge of the fact that the product that we provide is one that can be of amazing convenience, can you know solve a real-life problem for customers, but at the same point of time is a product that you can use too much of, uh, and that can cause harm to you if you use it, you know, in excess or in irresponsibly, right? And so it has a challenge to it, and I think, you know. When people started, you know, praising companies like Klarna or Afterpay and others, um, first they were just all excited about, you know, the opportunities and the amazing success that these companies were creating. But then they started reflecting on, on the challenges uh, and the downsides of these products. And so that was an obvious target. Uh, you have this very successful thing that's been hailed and, and celebrated. Now you have a very clear reason and a, a clear argument for why it also has, you know, negative side effects. And so, but but with that said, I think also importantly is that when we started the business, like when we started the business back in the days, did I reflect on like, will people overspend? You know, will this mean that they will, you know, use too much credit? Nope. Like I didn't do why, because as I told you initially, we took a product that existed in mail order and catalog businesses for a hundred years and we just digitalized it. And when we looked at the revenue model, we looked at the big bags 
And they were offering similar products, but not very well adopted to a digital environment. And, and you know, we were like, okay, so how do you make money? This is how you make money. Okay, fine. Um, let's do it. There was no reflection on that. However, a few years later, as the business had grown, I remember sitting, looking at a financial forecast. And I looked at this revenue line called late fees. And I was like, wow, what is this big revenue line? How, you know, wow, this is a lot of late fees. And at that point of time, it really struck me like, whoa, you know, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be long-term sustainable, right? And I think at that point of time, it also, to some degree, you know, and then that happened to coincide with us getting our first kind of controversy in Swedish press. People started just like they started, you know, targeting Afterpay in Australia. Same happened in Sweden where we started getting, this was about 2013. We started getting a lot of like negative press over this. And and some of it was fair and, 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 and to the point, and some of it was taken out of context. But the point is that like, I think also for me that at that point of time, and I think me and Nicholas kind of came to different conclusions. I think Nicholas came to the conclusion, wow, this is complex. This is hard. I'm going to leave. And I came to the conclusion like, wow, this is complex. This is even more hard than I thought. How am I going to solve it? Right. And so but since then, I started reflecting on like, okay, is it actually feasible? Can I compete in an industry that to a large degree is built on predatory practices? I mean, anyone can go and watch Netflix, uh, credit cards explain, will give you 25 minutes of everything that the banks have been doing the last decades to make you borrow more than you need on your credit card to revolve and put yourself in as much depth as possible because that's how, you know, the banks even say it on their investor calls. They're like, we're going to maximize interest rate spread. What does that mean? If you translate, it means give you as little as possible on your deposit accounts and savings rates and charge you as much as possible on your credit. So it's not really at the best interest of customers. This is an industry that has lost traction due to the lack of competition, hasn't been forced to focus at creating true value for its customers to the degree. It's become better. It's actually not as bad as it used to be 20 years ago. And so I think that like, you know, but also we realized then like, wow, you know what, coming back to when I saw those late fees, like, you know, how am I going to change this? Is there a way forward where I can offer a healthier credit product that is actually, you know, has less of the downsides, but, uh, but is still profitable because I'm going to compete with people who are not in the press every day, who are not, you know, being challenged every day by journalists and who are not necessarily going to change their business model and make less money. Right. So how am I going to compete with that? And so I think that was one of the biggest challenges we started reflecting on. But part of that was also we had to go to our investors and say, you know what? Some of the revenue we're making is not long term sustainable and you are going to have to accept I'm going to grow volumes like that. I'm going to grow revenue like that. So I'm not going to grow it as fast as volume because I'm going to have to give these fees back. I'm going to have to take them away. Uh, I've become addicted to a, a revenue line that is not good for our long-term success. And we need to get rid of it. And we've done that. We've returned all of that money. We, for example, stopped offering revolving accounts. I mean, Nick at Afterpay never did it even. He never offered that. Um, I think it was one of the strong things he always stood up for. Like zero interest means zero interest, right? And I think that there was... So again, um, I really appreciate the fact that the... Um, you know, we, it's a balance, obviously, because we are, as I used to say, we are fighting fire with fire. 
uh, you know, offering credit to displace other credit. And, and, you know, some people will always ask that. And if you're of the political conviction that credit is wrong or should not exist at all in society, I'm not going to win an argument with you, right? But we believe that credit has a role to play in society. It's more a question of offering a healthier form of credit uh, than the ones that have historically existed. And, and, and there, I feel that we're doing a good job in that. But again, it's still credit, right? Um, personally, I'm not a big fan of gambling companies. I think they're worse to credit. <laughs> like, and, and as a sober alcoholic, I'm not a big fan of wine producers and, you know, uh, alcohol producers either. Even though most people will think that a wine producer is the, you know, the coziest and nicest entrepreneurial thing you can do. So, you know, people will have their own political convictions in different areas. But I, I, I think this is, you know, we've tried to find the proper balance and then we've tried to deal with both the perception, the media, and make sure that we make the changes to our products that we feel that we can defend them, right? And, and that we feel that like, no, there's a good reason why this product works this way and it makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And uh, if I could share from my own personal experience, um, I think from my personal experience as a as a entrepreneur founder, the power is for the retailer. Like I I have never seen conversion rates increase when you put an afterpay or a Klarna on your Shopify store. Like you increase conversion rates and as a retailer, who wouldn't want that? The funny thing about that, then people come to us and say, yeah, but is it good? Should people consume more in this world of climate crisis? But but the point is like, you, you know, you come to, re I was like, you know what? But like at some point of time, you have to shift the focus from the single company to your political ambitions and, you know, and convictions. Like, I, you know, I, I wouldn't chase, you know, I can go and chase the the company that builds a road to the shopping mall and say, you know, you are contributing to climate, you know, uh, climate, uh, our climate problem because you're allowing people to drive to the shopping mall and buy more stuff. Like th th there has to be some kind of limitation where your responsibility as a company ends and the political responsibility starts. Like I can make a long list of things that the politicians are not doing that could, you know, really seriously contribute to uh, you know, climate in the world. Uh, actually, funny enough, I was speaking to Al Gore once on this topic where, you know, I was asking him about a few climate kind of oriented startups. And he said, look, you know, I really appreciate you talking about that. But look, the companies are not going to make a difference. Politicians have to make the decisions, right? So I think that like there, there is obviously a responsibility. And that's what I say also. I think it's different. If you start a restaurant, do you have a responsibility towards society? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, it's probably nice if you're like, you know, you're not buying the cheapest food, but you actually care about where you're getting the food from and stuff like that. But I do think if you just own a small restaurant, you have a limited responsibility. But then obviously, if your business becomes McDonald's, do you have a slightly larger responsibility towards society? Yeah, you do. Like, I think it's fair that you take that responsibility as a larger brand, as a larger company. And the same applies to us, right? As a startup, there was one thing as we've grown up, we have to take a larger responsibility and we cannot just say, well, it's legal or illegal. It's not good enough. But at the same point of time, you also have to ask yourself, like, where does it end? Like, I'm sorry, like, I'm trying to make e-commerce better than in-store purchases. 
I think e-commerce is actually better for the climate than in-store. There's a lot of studies to suggest it. But like at some point of time, like, you know, if you start getting into discussions, are you helping overcome something like, you know? So for many of our listeners, uh, this is going to be the first time they're kind of trying to start or grow a company during economic uncertainty or financial uncertainty with the current climate of the market. What advice would you give to them? You know, annoying to hear maybe in some degrees, but I actually think to some degree it's the best thing that can happen. Um, I, I look, you know, I get remember we started Clara in two thousand five. It was a very healthy macroeconomic environment, and then came the Lehman crash, two thousand seven financial crisis. Um, and obviously we were scared as hell. Uh, we were just about to launch a new product that we needed the support of the bank. All of the banks pulled out. There was a single bank in the end that actually, you know, continued to support us. And we closed the contract two weeks before we were supposed to go live with the product. We had promised tons of merchants to do it. So it was like, you know, it was very much, we had to make, you know, 10x the effort uh, to make things happen. However, at the same point of time, as soon as kind of the most dramatic initial events unfolded, um, as the macroeconomic environment changed, wow you know like we went from an environment where it was impossible to hire to where people again started actually appreciating oh thank you a job <laughs> you know like they were actually appreciative of getting a job and they were like uh, that's fantastic and and you know people were dedicated and uh, cost of of things um you know that you were buying from other companies and stuff became more reasonable commercial deals became more reasonable uh you uh due to the lack of funding you started focusing on you know, really making a profit more, more, you know, explicitly. I mean, we were profitable at that point in time, but focusing even add more at it than other companies did. It, it actually made you realize just how much excess you may have had when you were, you know, VC funded, that there were things that weren't healthy, that you weren't really focusing on creating customer value. Like, I think actually if it's, it's tough as hell, if you have to do, for example, layoffs, or you have to do changes, it's really, really difficult, emotionally challenging. But I would say anyone that's gone through that, you know, it, it is as 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 tough as it may sound. You're not going to learn from when everything's awesome. You learn from when things are tough. Um, that's when you really learn. That's when you're going to learn more than anywhere. And so I think that's what you know. My kind of word to those people going through those tough times it's like you know don't put your head in the sand don't be the ostrich you know get out there lean into it take the decisions you need to make you know do the tough stuff that you need to do but from that you will learn you will learn so much or you come out better at the other side of it and and i think that like you know so to so to my degree and then also like competition goes down in a low economy, like we see that in our sector for sure, a lot of the people that were competing with us are not as active as they used to be. So like new opportunities open. So like if you're just, you, again, if you, you know, don't, uh, I can't remember who was said that, but like, don't, don't, don't miss the, op- don't miss the opportunity to make a, cri- a great, or you use, you do the best out of a great crisis or whatever they say, right? So I think that like, it's the same thing here. Just like, you know, take this opportunity um, to rethink your business and challenge the decisions you made and and um, uh, and just dive into it and, and you'll probably come out at the other side much stronger and better. I was, I was talking to 
uh, Nareen, the founder of um, of Omni, uh, which is a, uh, a a train booking ticket platform in Europe. Yeah. You got to like he hit most of his business was people doing backpacking from the US. When COVID hit, he lost ninety five percent of his revenue, right in a in a single event, right? and he had to. Unfortunately, I think it was let go of 80% of his stuff. There were like 200 people or something. In, 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 you know, super tough. He felt, you know, to some degree that it was, you know, I, uh, he probably even had, unfortunately, actually regret. He was like, he was like, people always tell me that they should have been tougher in, you know, reducing the size of the organization. And in his case, he said, like, I probably was too tough. <laughs> so it was like, but, 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 but still, like, you know, imagine going through that. But obviously, the, the things that he learned and the you know the challenges and so forth, and today it's it's an even better business, right? Um, so it's very very tough, and especially when it comes to you know your colleagues and people you may have you know uh, friends or people that you have hired and you know and so forth. These are very challenging uh, things. But uh, at the same point of time, if you deal with them, and if you do that in a good and empathetic way, and if you you know really take the responsibility and also consider all the employees that you have that are still there uh, whose you know job and salary depend on you to they you know they need you to take these t- tough decisions so we're going to move the hot seat round rapid fire questions and answers and then we'll wrap um first question first question i have is what did you value in your 20s that you don't value now i think i mean quickly it's like i I'm a sober alcoholic, so I used to value getting drunk. I'm do- I don't value that anymore. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Otherwise, I'm pretty much the same. What do you want new Klarna employees to feel when they start working for you? That has changed. I want them to feel challenged. I want them to come in and say, wow, this was much harder, much more difficult, much more challenging than I thought. And I want them to feel exactly at that critical point where you feel like I'm learning so much, but you're not breaking, you're not giving up, you're not feeling it's too much. That critical point is the perfect point. What should founders invest in at the beginning of their business? I I think it's particularly in the beginning, to me, you know, I think you should try to avoid as much of the, what's our culture, what's our this and that, you know, like, like everything should be about the business. You know, what are our customers saying? Are they happy? What do we need to fix? Like, don't get lost on the vision and the mission statement and this and that, whatever. Just, you know, be out there, talk to customers, learn, iterate, 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 iterate. Like, that's what you should invest your time in. So it's really time. I think nothing can replace time. You, uh, we counted the hours we were actually doing. We wanted to compare among the co-founders that we were, because we were always fighting who was working the most. And so eventually we started, you know, basically checking in and checking out. And I know that for the first six hours, uh, six years, I continue to do that. I know I spent in on average seven hours every day, including Saturday and Sundays and 365 days a year, seven hours every day for the first six years. And then if you could consider the fact I went on holidays and I did actually take a weekend off, you're going to realize how much, how much hours we spent, right? So time, time is your, time is your asset math. (laughs) <laughs> that's what you have yeah crazy uh last question if you could have dinner with any entrepreneur dead or alive who would it be and why 
I mean, it's a boring answer, but it has to be Elon Musk, right? Like, I, I don't think, you know, any entrepreneur today couldn't be, you know, less than impressed or fascinated by by him. I've met him once. I've said hi. That's as much as I've accomplished on that. Awesome. Well, we will wrap there, Sebastian. Thank you so much. I appreciate your openness, honesty. This is an incredible interview. It's really going to help our community. So thank you again. Thank you, Nita. I really appreciate it. Fun. Um, thank you for, for having me. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.